Over the course of this study, we've been trying to understand what the book of Isaiah has to teach us about the gospel, the good news that is at the heart of Christian faith. And well, it turns out that Isaiah has quite a lot to teach us. We've learned that Isaiah's gospel is very unsentimental. It does not overlook the greed or the hypocrisy or the abuse in the hearts of God's own people. Isaiah does not hesitate to condemn the failures and the iniquities of Israel, but neither does he suggest that they are the only ones who are guilty of such evil acts. And sometimes, sometimes we are tempted to think that way. We imagine that the world can be divided into different groups, those who are good and those who are wicked. And of course, most of us like to think that our group, the, the group that we belong to, we're on the side of the angels. So there's other people over there who are guilty offenders. But that's just not how things are. As the Russian dissident writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously put it, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Isaiah would agree with this wholeheartedly. There are no nations, no political parties, no religious groups who are innocent of wrongdoing. And Isaiah is very clear that God takes all of this wrongdoing very seriously. The Holy One of Israel cares. He doesn't turn a blind eye to the injustice of the nations or to the injustices of his own people. All of that is part of Isaiah's gospel. But as we've seen over the last couple sessions, Isaiah doesn't leave us in despair because the good news of Isaiah is that no matter how helpless the human condition may seem, God has not given up on his people. He is still committed to them. So committed, in fact, that he actually takes their place and bears the judgment for their guilt on himself. But that's not all that Isaiah's gospel consists of. And we would be doing Isaiah a deep disservice if we, if we stopped our analysis there. Yes, Isaiah speaks a word of good news to the guilty about the weight of their past and a word of comfort to those who feel ashamed of their present. But that's not all that he says. The good news of Isaiah doesn't just address the guilt and shame for the past and present misdeeds of our lives. Isaiah also has a lot to say about our future. To a, to a fearful and discouraged people, to these exiled people of Judah, he brings a word of hope, a word about the future. And that's going to be the theme of this, our sixth and final session on the book of Isaiah. We're going to talk about what Isaiah has to say about the future and how what he says affects the way that we live in the present. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says something very curious. He says that we are saved or that we were saved in hope. Now, this is a profound claim. In fact, Pope Benedict XVI, he devoted an entire papal encyclical just in trying to unpack the meaning of this claim in Romans chapter 8. And in his introduction, Benedict explains the importance of hope for Christian redemption. 
Redemption, he says, is offered to us in the sense that we have been given hope, trustworthy hope, by virtue of which we can face the present. The present, even if it is arduous, can be lived and accepted if it leads toward a goal, if we can be sure of this goal, and if this goal is great enough to justify the end of the journey. Now, maybe this sounds like a very religious thing to say, but actually what Benedict is talking about is true for everyone, religious or not. We all live our lives in anticipation of some kind of future goal. Uh, that goal may be a grand one, like the goal of perfect equality or the goal of the eradication of poverty and disease. Or maybe that goal is much more modest. Maybe the, the future hope that we envision is limited to our own personal success or prosperity, or that our own children would be happy and successful. But hope, hope for the future is universal. It's what motivates people in their daily life. So it shapes the, the actions and the, the strategies of corporations and political parties. They have a goal. They have a future that they're envisioning. And Isaiah, the prophet, is no different. He too is given a specific vision of the future that he wants to communicate. It's something he refers to repeatedly in his prophecies. But there are a couple of key passages where he really focuses on it. Now, the first one comes in Isaiah chapter 11, which begins by speaking of a future king who would come from the line of David and would bring righteousness and justice and deliverance for the poor. And then Isaiah says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. There have been a number of utopian visions in modern history put forward that have captured people's imaginations. Francis Bacon, for instance, dreamed of a society where scientific reason and technological innovation would bring an end to human suffering, would enable people to live at peace with one another. You see it all the way from Francis Bacon through Star Trek. And Karl Marx dreamed of a future when the working class would finally take ownership of their work and its profits and would no longer be used or controlled by wealthy and elite classes. Martin Luther King envisioned a future in which the content of a person's character, not the color of their skin, would be the only criterion by which they are judged. Now, these are all idealistic visions of the future, but none of them, none of them can compare with what Isaiah is saying here in Isaiah chapter 11. Because where, whereas all of these visions hope for a world that would bring greater equality and peace, none dare to imagine a world in which there is simply no violence whatsoever, not even within the animal kingdom. And notice what Isaiah is suggesting here. He's not just saying that, that violence will cease. He's actually suggesting that a future is coming 
in which all of creation will once again experience the harmony that was present in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned, before sin entered the world. There no longer will be, he says, there will no longer be predator and prey. Old enemies will be reconciled. In fact, even the ancient enmity between the serpent and the woman talked about in Genesis 3 will be gone. And it doesn't end there. You might read Isaiah's words and think that he's just talking about a cessation of conflict. But it goes deeper than that. When Isaiah says that a young child will put his hand over the adder's den and that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, he's saying that a time is coming when human beings will finally be living into the purpose for which they were created, exercising dominion over creation and the animals and filling the earth with the reflection of God's own glory, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's incredible, really. No modern utopia can hold a candle to the audacity of this vision. None would even dare try. And then later on in Isaiah chapter 35, we, we once again get a brief description of the future that awaits God's people. Now, on that occasion, Isaiah prophesies that a future is coming when all of the pain and all of the harm that people have suffered will suddenly be reversed. The blind, he says, the blind shall see, the deaf shall hear, the lame shall stand up and leap around for joy. And then, and then Isaiah starts to talk about a place, Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, he calls it. And here's what he says about it. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, this isn't the last time that Isaiah speaks of a future for Jerusalem. If you look near the end of the book, at chapters 60 through 62, you'll notice that the theme and the message is the same. In those chapters, Isaiah, once again, he's, he's talking about the future. He says that God will restore the city of Jerusalem, that he will restore its honor, that he will take away its shame, that the people who dwell there will live in perfect peace and will be free from suffering and pain. And he says that the nations will flock to this city and they will join in its worship. And of the citizens of that city, he says, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. In some sense, this vision of the future, it's very similar to what we saw in chapter 11. It's a future when violence and conflict and sin, all of that will be done away with. But these visions, these later visions, they add something new to that earlier prophecy as well. Because now it becomes clear that the future for God's people, this future isn't just a return to independent living in a garden. This future is very social, very political even. And it's interesting, the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible begins, which is one couple living alone in a garden. But according to Isaiah, 
The future will not simply be a return to isolated individuals or family units living in some rural paradise. Isaiah's vision is of a city, a city bustling with human activity, with work and creativity and cooperation. And Isaiah is not alone in this vision. If you read to the end of the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, you find the same thing. In Revelation chapter 21, John tells us, using a phrase that's almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 65, John says that he sees a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. But just like Isaiah, this new heaven and new earth, it doesn't consist in a garden. No, it's centered, John says, on a city, the new Jerusalem, a city that's alive with activity, a city into which the kings of the earth are bringing the wealth of the nations, where the people of God are living in the light of God's own glory. Now, after all this, you might be asking, well, what does all this mean for us, all these visions? What are you and I supposed to do with these images, these dreams of a utopian future? Well, the first thing we should do is we should allow these visions to shape the content and the character of our own hopes for the future. As I said earlier, what it is that people hope for, that can differ. But, you know, as a general observation, it has to be said that on the whole, the the object of our hope as Americans has diminished over time. It's gotten smaller. Several years ago, I read a book by a historian named Andrew Del Banco. It was based on a series of lectures that he gave at Harvard on what he called the real American dream. Now, in those lectures, he said that the hopes of Americans, that American hope had changed over the years. In the early years of the colonies and the country, in the days of the Puritans, Americans dreamed of a future beyond this world. Their hopes, Del Banco says, were focused on heaven and the world to come. But then during the 18th and 19th century, those hopes shifted from God and the life to come to the nation itself and the life here. Instead of dreaming about a a heavenly paradise, Americans dreamed about America itself as a kind of political and economic paradise. But then, then Del Banco says, sometime in the 20th century, things started to change again. Now, he says, what most Americans hope for isn't some kind of glorious future for our nation. Now, he says, our dreams have become less grand, less optimistic, more individual. Our hopes are mostly now focused on just our own personal happiness, our own prosperity, our own career success. And we now live in a time in which he says the highest aspiration, at least for those who can afford to try, is to keep their own body forever young. And you know, Christians are not immune from these shifts in American culture. Many of us, we share the same hopes and the same dreams as our non-Christian neighbors. We dream of expanding our business, of building a new home, of celebrating our kids' acceptance into some kind of prestigious university, of happy times that we will spend with our grandchildren. And none of these things are bad, of course. 
They're good things to desire, but they are very different from the dream that Isaiah describes and his visions that he lays out of a, of a new heavens and a new earth and a renewed Jerusalem. And they're also much more self-centered. Our hopes tend to be centered on ourselves and our families. But Isaiah, Isaiah wants us to expand our hope. He wants us to dream of something much greater, to uh, adapt and kind of change a little bit. A saying of C.S. Lewis, you could say that what Isaiah is teaching us is not that we hope for too much, but actually that we hope for too little. Uh, of course, some people might respond and say, well, the kind of future Isaiah describes, it's just, it's just too optimistic. It's, it's too, too utopian, too otherworldly. And someone might say that focusing our hope on that kind of future, that just leads to ignoring the, the real problems and the, the real injustices that need to be addressed here and now. That modern critics have often leveled that charge against Christianity. That's why Karl Marx said that Christianity is the opiate of the masses. Because if you get people to spend their time thinking about some idyllic future world, all you're really do doing is numbing them to the problems that they currently face. You're training them to be passive and quiet and accept the world as it is. But that's entirely wrong. Isaiah doesn't give Israel this hope so that they'll become complacent. That's not how hope works. Hope, real hope, doesn't encourage us to just accept our lives as they are. It's actually quite the opposite. The visions of Isaiah should actually make us even more discontent with the, with the iniquities that, that plague our world and our own lives. Not less discontent. We should be more discontent. For as the Catholic Archbishop Charles Chaput observes, hope is a choice, a self-imposed discipline to trust in God while judging ourselves and the world with unblinkered, unsentimental clarity. Now, in some ways, you could say that that is precisely the goal of the entire book of Isaiah. That is what this fifth gospel asks of us. It asks us to make a choice. In what, it says, in what will we place our hope? Will it be in our own resources? Will it be as Israel was tempted to do in some kind of mighty political leader? Or will we choose to put our trust in God and in the promises that he makes through his prophet Isaiah, all the while judging ourselves and the world around us with unblinkered, unsentimental clarity? Now that's what Isaiah offers us. Now that's what makes this book such good news because that is the message of hope that it offers. And that is how it enables us to live in the present.